I am Tova Cito. I believe our lives should be happy, healthy, and abundant. And I believe it's our job to get us there. Every week, I will have inspiring, educational, and fun conversations that will help you live your very best life. Welcome to The Remedy. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to the very next episode of The Remedy with Tobacito. I am so happy to have you all here today. Um, hope you're having a great day wherever you are. I know it's summer. A lot of you are traveling. So if you're on the road or on a walk or sitting by a beach, I hope you're enjoying. So uh, today I'd like to thank the sponsor of today's episode, Brittany and Christopher Crow. Thank you so very much for your generous contribution and for always being huge supporters and great encouragers of what we are doing here. And Kevin lives to see another day. Thank you for keeping us alive. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you, Brittany and Christopher. Really, really appreciate it. So today I have um, someone that I really um, have learned a lot from and uh, just find his, I don't even know, philosophy, theology, uh, counseling, incredibly insightful. His name is Dr. Gary Barnes, and uh, we met several months ago through a mutual friend. And um, I've just learned a lot from you. <laughs> That's how I'll say it. <laughs> great. I have learned a lot That's from great. Dr. Gary Barnes. So um, I would call you, um, what, what would you call yourself? A relationship expert? Um, a, a, <laughs> a relationship guru? learner, a I guru? would say. There's always more to learn. <laughs> always so more to learn. Tell us about you, Gary. Tell us about like where you grew up, where, how you got into okay. this, where you studied, all that stuff. Okay. What made, what made well, you Well, going this way, guy? way back, I, I grew up as a preacher's kid. Mm-hmm. So I, I actually grew up in the church. Okay. I mean, like literally in the church. <laughs> Um, a Methodist? Yeah, uh, Baptist. Oh, Baptist. So my you dad up- was a Baptist preacher. Yeah. Okay. So um, I don't know exactly how this actually first developed, but I, I seem to really latch on to an interest in personal change. Mm. So I think sports early on, you get to see conditioning, you get to see team development, individual character development. So sports was a really, you know, initial big part of that. Mm-hmm. As I got older, I got involved in uh, outdoor wilderness programs mm. like Outward Bound mm. program. Work, actually worked in those for six years. And through what organization? I know there's a lot of different ones, but who did you work with? <clears throat> so I, I was involved with Outward Bound directly. Okay. And then there were two different Christian Outward um, bound tight programs. And were you in your 20s when you did this? This was in high school and college. Oh, okay. Yeah. So in what capacity did you work there? Well, I started off as a participant, mm-hmm. became a counselor, and then became a director. Oh, wow. And so um, we led programs uh, for high school kids for a while. And then... Um, Can I as, ask, what made you go there as a participant? I don't remember. Really? It just happened. You did, so your parents didn't say you're going to go do oh, this? Oh, no, or? no, no. No, no, no. You, you know, as family, we did tent camping, so I thought mm-hmm. outdoor was cool, you know, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. it just kind of was a, one of those developing things. So you just did but it. I loved it. I loved it. it. Mm-hmm. So the whole outward bound philosophy is 
you facilitate change by orchestrating through the outdoors an experience that is out of your comfort zone. Mm. And then you have to cope. Mm. And that's what life does for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Only we don't orchestrate it. It just happens. Mm-hmm. So, But this was kind of a structured way of learning about the change process. Mm. How long are those programs? If you go on an outward bound, how long is it? Yeah, there's all different lengths. Mm-hmm. Um, so... Well, I actually met my wife in a program that oh, was really? a, a summer long program. And was she working with? She was a counselor. Well? I was a director. Mm-hmm. It was strictly business, no romantic <laughs> Until relationships. <it> wasn't. <laughs> yes. Till three years later. Really? Yeah. So I often tell people we lived together for three months before we ever dated. <laughs> you kind of did. We did outdoors the whole time. Wow. It was outdoors. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so you stopped working there at what age? So um, after I got through college, I I actually spent a year in a master's program in Minnesota that was the Outward Bound Training Program. Okay. Where did you go to undergrad? Cornell in New York. Nice. Where were you raised? Where did you grow up? I I grew up in New York. Okay. You did? Yeah. What part? Long Island. Wow. Long Island. I did not know you were a New Yorker. Yes. (laughs) I wasn't born there, but I grew up there. Wow. Okay. So you go to Cornell, and yeah. then you go oh, to well, this... Oh, that's an, also an interesting part of the story. So my dad, Southern Baptist preacher mm-hmm. in the 60s, went to Long Island to start a Southern Baptist church. Mm. How'd that go? It was amazing. Really? This, was, this was part of the change story, too. So there were like four families meeting in the basement of a home, three different ethnic groups in a blue-collar neighborhood. Wow. Seven years later... The church had gone through its third building uh, program. Wow. And there was like over 350 people. And these were like all new believers. Wow. I mean, nobody was transferring from another Baptist church in Long Island. I don't know that there's 300 people in New York City that go to church. (laughs) (laughs) It was amazing. And it was in the 60s. Wow. and and yeah. these were people who were really coming from the hard side of life, and, mm-hmm. and the grace of God changed mm-hmm. them. I mean, I got to see it firsthand. Mm-hmm. So, you know, as you're like growing into teenage years and through those years, and you're in the church, you kind of develop a nose for hypocrisy, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's hard to stick with a church during those years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I had the opposite experience. Mm-hmm. I mean, since... Uh, it was a blue-collar neighborhood in church. We did all of our own building. And so since I was a preacher's kid, I was slave labor for, <laughs> for like my whole junior high and high school experience. But uh, I got to work shoulder to shoulder in the trenches with these guys who were talking about how Jesus changed their life. And, and one guy, I don't even know if his stories were true or not, but it didn't really matter because they were so good. <laughs> He, he met Jesus while he was in the mafia and wow. got out. He actually wow. got out. So we lived for lunch breaks to hear his stories. Wow. What, and in what capacity did he say he met Jesus? Do you remember? Um, I'd like to know it, that. It was through home Bible studies. Oh, wow. Wow. So change, big thing, mm-hmm. big mm-hmm. thing. Mm-hmm. And... Um, and it intrigued you. You saw really, it, yeah. and you, you, that you was real. saw that people can that really was real. change, yeah, which no, is hard, 
Hard. Radical change, too. Uh-huh. Wow. Yeah. To leave the mafia for Jesus is radical. Yeah. <laughs> I'd say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you leave Cornell. Yeah, so you go to then the we went to Minnesota program. in the master's program, did that. That was really awesome. Um, did they pay for it? Did they? Did no. they? Okay. No, <laughs> no, no. So this isn't because you're working for them. They Right. I was never on staff with them. Oh, okay. I was okay. on the other. And, and then I worked for another group called Voice of the Wilderness, which was like a Christian wilderness outward bound program. Mm. And um, they were actually based in Houston. Uh, I came to seminary after that master's program, mm-hmm. just to be sure I kind of had my Bible and theology together. Mm-hmm. And then that was our plan. We were going to you know, do that together. And so we did that while we were in seminary. Where did you go to seminary? Uh, Dallas Theological Seminary. Mm-hmm. So why that school? Why did you pick there? Um, you know, when I was working in one of the other programs up in New York in the Adirondacks, mm-hmm. a guy who was my boss... Mm-hmm. was a DTS grad, mm. and I thought, where in the world did you go to school? That's where I want to go. Mm. If, if I could be like you. Mm. And so it was strictly because of him. Wow. Yeah. And did you like DTS? I did. It was hard. <laughs> Seminary's hard. Yeah, yeah. We we went there one year after marriage and left with three kids. Oh. So it was a very productive time for us. <laughs> <laughs> Kevin, <laughs> we heard you giggle. <laughs> How far apart are your kids? How quickly did you have two so, children? Well, we have four kids, two boys, two girls, mm-hmm. and the last one was born when the oldest was five. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Wow. It's only because of Kathy. Wow. That we even tried that or survived it, <laughs> I would say. But yeah, we wanted the cram plan, and yeah. so... Well, you mission accomplished. Yeah, there's there's a lot of good things about it. You know, uh, we weren't really thinking through all of the implications of it, like four teenagers at once and four college, college tuitions students. at once and weddings back to back. And are all your children married? The youngest isn't. Okay. The, so our so how old older. are your kids now? So now they're uh, thirty three to thirty nine. Wow. Almost 34 next month. So 30, are you, 34 to 39. Are you a grandparent? Only have nine grandkids. Oh, my gosh. That's unbelievable. And the oldest is 10. So we're like on the one-year plan. There's a rotation. Everybody knows when it's their turn up next. <laughs> wow. Yeah. That and is they're all local. A lot. They all live here in Dallas? Yeah. They all go to our church. Oh, my gosh. And they're all at our house, or we're at their house. Oh, that's I mean, so fun! That's awesome. Yeah, Christmas ideal. must be crazy. It's it's like every week is crazy. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. I did not know that about it's you. It's great fun. That is it's that our, is you're very, very, very blessed. Very lucky to have yes, that. We are Dang. Ex- extremely. We try not to brag about it too much. Oh, but that's. You should brag. I mean, that's that's really lucky. I have there's th- there's four kids in my family, and we're all over. Yes, and, and to see each other is not easy, and it's not often. That's the more common story. Yeah, it's very and we rare. all love each other so much. It's so hard to be so far away. Yeah, it's that's tough. That's tough. You're lucky. You're really it's, lucky. Yes, very unusual. Yeah, good job, Dad. Grace, <laughs> I didn't make that happen. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so you have four kids right yeah. out of the chute. You're f- finishing up this wilderness program, or how long did you yeah. do that? So we did that uh, during seminary, and and then we started having kids. In fact, I remember on top of uh, Cherry Cairn Mountain in the Rockies, uh, Kathy was. I had a picture of her sitting in some wildflowers, and she's pregnant mm-hmm. at that time, and that was her last mountain. <laughs> so as I began to look around at my other peers who were doing this over time, we saw that it's it's not a family-friendly mm. direction yeah, to go. I get that. So uh, when, when we um, got out of the church, we did a thing where we worked. I mean, when we got out of the seminary, we worked in the church directly. Mm-hmm. So I was on staff of church. I was assistant pastor for seven years. At what church? At a Bible church in Richardson Trinity Fellowship. Oh, okay. And um, they actually hired me as um, not the preaching guy, but like a counseling and outreach Mm -hmm. guy. Mm -hmm. And so we started, uh, while I was in seminary, we started an outreach in the West Dallas Housing Projects. And so we used a lot of wilderness camping, young life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that, that was really amazing. Uh, learning about the process of change in a context like that, mm. and also the definition of the family changes in a context. Ooh, like that's that. good. My kids just got back from Young Life Camp in really? Colorado. Really? Which one? Um, Frontier. Nope, it wasn't Frontier. We've been to Frontier as a family. Yeah. It was was it Marble something? I don't know. Uh, it was one that I'd never heard of before. Okay. But they, I mean, nothing influences my children. More than Young Life. Yes. Nothing. It's powerful. They have been to all kinds. They've been to Prestwood Bible camps, and they've been to beach camps with the Presbyterians. We're Methodists. They do all kinds of mission trips and camps with the Methodists. I'm a major Young Life fan. Nothing impacts my children or influences them more positively for Jesus. I mean, their behavior completely changes because of Young Life. It's amazing. Very powerful. Mm-hmm. The yeah. relational and the experiential is really and powerful. The, and the grace, the yeah. grace that they understand and believe, the grace of Jesus Christ that they really, I mean, for whatever reason, however they do it, it's like they believe the love of Jesus Christ mm-hmm. with when they go to Young Life. Yes. It's awesome. It, it's modeled incarnationally mm-hmm. to them. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. It really is. That's a great way Can to I say ask it. Just, what is Young Life? Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, I have good. no idea what that is. Oh, so. great. For any other listeners who are like me, yeah, yeah what is that? <laughs> good, good. I'm so glad you asked. I just think everybody knows what Young Life is. Well, yeah. you, say, you, you explain Young Life. So, uh, I'm sure you can explain I th- it. I think their me. official term, they would say, is they're a parachurch ministry. So they work in partnership with a church. Okay. But it works outside of the church. And, and their whole goal is to touch youth with not just the message of Christ, but the experience of Christ. So it's a, it's a very relational ministry. So camps are one of the things that they use, but uh, they go to the high schools and the communities where kids are. Mm-hmm. And so they have leaders who run clubs like every week where kids come and gather. And, and they, What's the age bracket? Uh, I don't know the youngest, but their primary focus is high school. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And they make it so simple. Like they, my kids' school, there's a lot of um, 
kids who just, you know, a great dinner isn't easy. Getting rides places isn't easy. And they will pick these kids up at the school in a bus, take them to the church where Young Life is. They have a full homemade cooked meal for dinner. And then they have like cool games and skits and then they worship. It's just accessible. People who've never, ever, ever heard Jesus experience Jesus. It's awesome. For, for like a summer thing like that, what's the standard duration? How long? Do you... Oh, it's not summer. It's, it's through the whole it's school, yeah. school year. So my kids go to Young Life every single Monday night. Oh, okay. And I just pick them up from the church at nine o'clock. They leave from the school in a bus with all their friends. They get dinner. They worship. They have so much fun. And then I pick them up at nine o'clock on Mondays. But then summer camp, like I paid for them to go mm-hmm. to camp. But bus picks them up. They drive to Colorado. And for kids who can't afford it, there's scholarships. And for kids who need partial scholarships, they offer that. And, and how long is the camp? Just a week. Okay. They were gone from Saturday to Sunday. Or Sunday to Sunday. Saturday to Sunday. Cool. It was awesome. Yeah. I and mean, life-changing, really. I had no idea. I'd never heard of that. It's amazing. Go get your kids in young life. Yes. <laughs> they will be nicer to you. <laughs> great ministry. It is a great ministry. But again, another context of transformation mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. understanding the power of the relational context for change, mm-hmm. not just cognitive information mm-hmm. for change. Mm-hmm. So that, that was a big... So we did that for uh, seven years. Our urban young life club, we called Eagle Flight mm-hmm. out of Isaiah 40. Mm-hmm. So... Um, that really brought up a lot of new questions for me, though, of how does change happen with urban families, mm-hmm. with especially the different definition of families mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. a housing project mm-hmm. with all the challenges that are there. And so uh, after doing that for seven years through the church, but also in partnership with like a Young Life ministry. Uh, and rethinking that and talking to the leadership of our church, we decided at that point, yeah, I think it'd probably be good for you to go back to school again. You have a lot of school. So it kind <laughs> of keeps of- weaving in and out. <laughs> you have a lot of degrees on your wall. So I found myself saying a similar thing that my dad said uh, back in the 60s. He came home one day and said, hey, we're going to go to a new ministry, and it's on a uh, small island off the east coast of the United States called Long Island. Mm. And so I'm coming home to my family saying, hey, we're going to go to a new different adventure in ministry, a small island off of the east coast called Manhattan Island. Wow. So we, I began a Ph.D. program in psychology at Columbia University. Wow. So our kids were all part of this experiential learning process because they were at this time kindergarten to fourth grade. Okay. And is your wife always on board with these? It's a process, <laughs> I would say. That's a good way to say it. Yeah. <laughs> we, uh, we entered into it on the shared plan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, that's a really longer story maybe than we have here. But uh, their first year, getting back to change, so they, they grew up with this whole West Dallas urban ministry experience, hundreds of kids in our homes and camps and all that. Mm-hmm. So they were, they were pretty aware Exposed. of all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but we lived on the Upper West Side, 121st and Broadway. Where it was in student housing, mm-hmm. but it's in the Harlem School District. Mm. And so that was their school. Wow. 
And so it's pretty easy to pick them out in a class picture. There's like one white face for each class picture of all four of them. <laughs> uh, but really rich wow. experience um, in that. Uh, my wife's a teacher. Uh, the second year we were there, she taught, at, she got a job teaching at uh, St. Hilda's and St. Hugh's Episcopal School mm-hmm. right there on the Upper West Side. Mm-hmm. And then we just bartered all four of their uh, tuitions for her teaching. Oh, wow. And so that was their next three years experience. Okay. Wow. There. So at... Uh, was that diverse? Was that school yes, diverse? Yes, extremely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's good. So um, at, at Columbia, what I was trying to do was to get a better grip on this change process, and especially with the family unit and diverse kinds of families. Mm-hmm. And so I got a PhD in, in clinical psychology with a specialization in marriage and family. Okay. Got, I had, New York City has so many rich training opportunities, even outside of university walls, that it, it was a really incredible rich experience. And so you took you you did took advantage of all of those? Oh yeah, I probably awesome. overdid it. Uh, and then that began to really have a big impact on our own family in a negative way mm-hmm. because um, you know, New York City's highly competitive, fast-paced place. Right. Um, if you work hard and have a little bit on the ball, doors will open. And then if you go through that door and work hard and have a little bit on the ball, more doors open. Mm-hmm. But it brings a higher and higher cost each time mm. you go through another door. Mm. And so I was so persuaded in my way of thinking that these were opportunities to all be taken and it became at a greater and greater cost to our own family. Mm-hmm. So get a load of the irony of this. <laughs> Here I am getting a PhD to help marriage and family, and I'm eroding away bit by bit my own marriage and family. And how did that, what did that look like? How did that manifest? So, I know that's a real personal question. Yes. Um, so you, you can know, say, we I don't want to talk to about it that. now as getting a PhD in stupidity. <laughs> um, but it actually showed itself in my oldest daughter. She was the one, you know how you have like the canary in the cave? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. She was the one that started to feel and show problems mm-hmm. first. And how old is she at this point? Mm, good question. Uh, let's see. She's... Ish. About 10-ish. Okay. Yeah. So uh, it, it finally... Um, it came to the point where I did have like a moment of the two by four against the head and realized this is, this is all wrong. Mm. What's we're doing here. Was it gradual or was it an event? The um, process of getting to the negative was very gradual. Mm -hmm. It's kind of like the frog in the pot. Mm -hmm. So this was like our third year out. Uh, where it really, it was, I think it was pretty good up until about the third year. Third year, the workload was just ridiculous. And uh, I was getting more energized by it. The family was getting more depleted by it. Yeah. And so uh, it was in the fourth year where uh, we had to make a change, by the end of the fourth year. Mm-hmm. And how long is this program? How long are you supposed to be there? 
So it, it's four years. Okay. Um, if you're working hard to okay. get through it. Okay. Which doesn't include the dissertation. So that, that happens after you leave, if you want. It's up mm -hmm. to you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, at the end of, uh, so in the fourth year, I'm at a clinical internship in uh, NYU Medical in Bellevue Hospital, mm -hmm. working in the Family Studies Center. <laughs> <laughs> And not working in my family. <laughs> and um, so I had a 12-month commitment to complete that. When school was out that spring, I moved my family back to Dallas. Mm. We, we kept our home. Mm -hmm. mm. And uh, so we had a lot of healing to occur in our family. And our church family mm. just was awesome at mm. reaching around us and helping us. How did they do that? Heal. They just loved us. They were just a presence for us. They were just there, welcomed us back. That's awesome. Yeah. So that summer, I had to go back and complete. So I was, you know, without my family for that summer. That was like my hardest three months of my mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, God's grace really provided a, a healing journey mm -hmm. for us. It took time, though. And what it... What did, what took place in that time of healing? How do you, how did you heal from, from it? So, um, you know, the basic formula is you stop doing the stuff that erodes and you start doing the stuff that nurtures. And then you just give it a lot of time to take, take its result, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. And so um, a lot of ours was about the use of time. Mm -hmm. Was your was your wife hurt? Very much so. Um, yeah. Would she talk about it with you? Oh yeah. I never heard it. No. I heard it the way I needed to hear it. Mm -hmm. The way you wanted to hear it. Yeah, the way it, <laughs> the way it had to be heard, <laughs> so the mission could be carried on. Mm. I get that. Yeah. She gave up. Man. She stayed, but she gave up trying to tell me. So it was really my daughter. It was through my daughter's negative experience that I began to listen mm -hmm. and understand and hear. Yeah, that was a life-changing journey for us. How did your wife forgive you? Time. More deposits and less withdrawals. <laughs> I love when you say that. <laughs> Will you explain deposits and withdrawals? Because I yes. think it's so powerful. So we all carry an emotional account around with us. Mm -hmm. And um, whenever relationships are growing and thriving, you have a positive account. You, you have more deposits in the account than you have withdrawals. Mm -hmm. The problem is we're all broken, fallen people in a broken, fallen world raised by broken and fallen parents. And so we do things both intentionally and unintentionally mm -hmm. that brings an impact of a withdrawal in the relational account. Like, can you give an example? Well, you know, the two big pillars of any relationship are trust and commitment. Mm -hmm. And any time you're making a decision that impacts those in a negative way, mm -hmm. 
that's that's going to take work to rebuild that back again. Mm-hmm. So I have a question about that. <clears throat> I have been in relationships where the, imp- the where trust has been impacted, and um, and it seems like it seems like, and maybe I'm just all kinds of wrong, but it seems like it's been my experience and it's not just been one relationship. It's been several relationships that I've had when, when trust is impacted, it seems like the person who, who withdraws the trust doesn't understand the impact of the withdrawal. Yes. And yet when, and so when they start making deposits of trust, they want it to go back quickly. Yes. And it doesn't go back it's quickly. It's a big process. And yeah. so is that common? Is that common that... Both sides of it are yes, common. Yes. That it takes the person who's received the negative impact or withdrawal, it takes them longer, and the person who's making the positive deposits now wants it to go faster. I've never seen it different than that. <laughs> well, that makes me yeah. feel very normal. It's a big club. <laughs> I am the captain of that club. <laughs> I've never <laughs> seen it different. I'm class than that. president of that club. <laughs> yeah. So, what do you say to that? How do you, when you're counseling people, yeah. what do you say to that? Don't quit. Hmm. Be patient. It's a process. Both sides. Both sides. Yeah. Keep, keep hanging on to the yeah. positive. So it's all about interactional choice making the term I use. We tend to think that good outcomes are because we find the right person or we have the right mix of similarities and differences or we had the right family backgrounds or even the right faith backgrounds or maybe it's just pure luck. See, but it's without a shadow of a doubt after decades of good longitudinal empirical research now that we can say outcomes of stability and satisfaction in relationships are result of interactional choices. Mm. There's, there's no doubt about this. Mm-hmm. The general public, unfortunately, is not aware of the awesome research findings that mm-hmm. we have. Now, we just know things now that we didn't know when I got married. Mm-hmm. The research hadn't been done on this. But longitudinal empirical studies are direct observation of the same couples over long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Some of the couples have been in studies for over 20 years now. Wow. See? And the studies themselves have all been conducted over a four-decade time period now. And we have key researchers. I would say there's about 20 key researchers in the U.S. in all different academic arenas around the country, and they all come up with reinforcing findings. So there's a what we call convergent validity. Mm. And, and it all comes back. It's just back, piling on to the truth. Yes, and it all comes back to confirm the, the predictive variables are a combination of unchangeable variables, like I can't do anything about, but also changeable variables. Mm-hmm. The changeable variables we found trump the unchangeable variables. Mm. See, so like um, 
one of what a good example of an unchangeable variable. If I grow up in a family where my parents got divorced, mm -hmm. well, that's a predictor variable. That does make a difference. Mm. Okay. This is another thing that happened in my family. Before I went off to college, my dad, a pastor, while we were at the wilderness camp in the summer, get a letter from the church, a form letter, saying he's going to another ministry. First we heard about it. We come home at the end of that summer. Dad sits my brother and I down in the living room. Mom's already gone, and he says, well, I'm not going to another ministry. I don't know where I'm going. Your mom's gone, and we're getting a divorce, and mm -hmm. it's time for you guys to be on your own. Wow. There's 300 bucks each. God bless. And then he disappears. See? So that's a, that's a predictor variable right there. The good news is that the change variables trump the variables that don't change. Mm. And the change variables, the key ones, are the interaction choices between the two of us. Mm. So even though my past is going to inevitably... It's a factor. It's a factor. It can't not be a factor. Right. What I do today or how I behave today can Your be choices different. today can trump what your choices of the past were. I like that. Or a somebody lot. else's choices mm -hmm. of the past. Mm -hmm. So let's go back to something that you just said. Um, you know, it's not about finding the right person. It's not about having perfect backgrounds. It's not about being on the same page of this, that, and the other. That makes it sound, and I know you're not saying it, but it does make it sound when you're saying it. Like, okay, then I could just be, if I worked hard enough, I could be in a relationship with just about anybody. So I'm not, I'm not recommending that you just go out <laughs> and make an uninformed choice mm -hmm. about who you are going to be in a relationship with. Mm -hmm. But there's also research studies on relationships where the people did not choose each other. Somebody else chose them. Mm. Arranged marriages. Mm -hmm. See? Mm -hmm. um, and those have outcomes of stability and satisfaction, not just stability without satisfaction. If you compare the difference in the groups, okay, it's going to come back to their interactional choices, even though they didn't initially choose each other. Mm. It still comes back to the withdrawals It still comes back to interactional choices. Mm. I have a student who was telling me, uh, he, he was from <coughs> India. Mm-hmm. He was telling me not only uh, did their parents arrange their marriage, but he did not see his bride's face until the veil was lifted during the wedding <laughs> oh <my> ceremony. Gosh. <laughs> I just can't even imagine. Was and, he excited? Was he pleased? <laughs> was it a good thing? <laughs> I don't really know what the honest response was in the moment. But what he was able to say is, we have a stable and satisfying marriage now. Wow. I just find that beyond <laughs> fascinating. Well, dang. <laughs> Unbelievable. So I do, I do encourage and recommend informed choosing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, there's going to be trade-offs in any pairing of mm -hmm. any relationship. Mm -hmm. And so you would want to do a good job of understanding the pairings of the trade-offs that you're choosing. Mm -hmm. Like, 
okay, that sounds like something I could work with. I will have to work with it. Or, mm -hmm. yeah, that's something I don't want to have to keep working on, even mm -hmm. though I could work on it. Mm -hmm. That's like not the kind of work I want to do. <laughs> <laughs> I seem to be thinking about a lot lately. No, so I, I do recommend informed choice making. But, but what you don't want to do is have an approach where you're thinking that I've found the right person, therefore I won't have to do this kind of work. Mm, mm. That's the myth. Mm. It's really good. You're going to have to do it no matter who you're no, with. With anybody. Yeah. It'll be different kinds of work compared from person to person. Right. So I, I do recommend you pick the kind of work you're going to have to do. Yeah, yeah. That's a really great way to say it. Yeah. Like I don't want to... I don't want to do this kind of work. That's <laughs> really good. Okay, so <clears throat> I know you see a lot of couples. Do you see mostly couples than indiv over individuals? Mostly couples. Mostly couples. Mm -hmm. Okay, so when a couple comes to you, does it seem like um, couples come to you for, like what are the top two or three things that when you see a couple, you know you're going to yes. have this conversation? Yes, so it, it is very <clears throat> wide-ranging. Mm -hmm. Um there are couples that come to um, prevent problems, mm -hmm. like new couples wanting to kind of get a good foundation good and want to get launched well. Wow. So, so that's a subgroup that's that good. comes. Uh, there's couples that come shortly after a wedding, mm -hmm. uh, within the first year or two, and they're saying, this isn't what I had in mind. Mm -hmm. It's, it's not, I thought I found the right person and I was going to get the right outcome and I'm not getting the right outcome. So now I'm wondering if I found the wrong person. Wow. See, what do we do? So, um, so that's at, at the beginning of a relationship, just because there's newness, what happens is our brains change. And we actually do have different biochemical levels it's the same chemicals but the chemicals are elevated out of the newness mm -hmm. of the relationship and, and most of the times we refer to this as infatuation but what what's going on is when my when that particular chemistry is elevated i'm more naturally and automatically making the kinds of choices that lead to good interactional outcomes mm. Makes sense. And that happens in the two domains of all relationships where we need to make good choices, and that's in relationship enrichment and relationship management. Mm. So enrichment is how we create the impact of love. Management is how we deal with the inevitable differences, problems, and conflicts that all couples are going to have. Mm -hmm. So when, when my brain chemicals are elevated in the newness of the relationship, I'm more prone to choose us over me mm. in each of those two categories. Mm -hmm. And is that why, um, like, is that why the first six months, year is blissful? Because we're making compromises that two, three, five years down the road, we stop making. Okay, exactly. So for most couples, newness of the relationship becomes familiar. Mm. 
mm-hmm. in a two to three year time period. Mm-hmm. Are you listening, Kev? <laughs> <laughs> Kevin just got married. I'm a newlywed. <laughs> okay. So get geared up here. Yeah. Listening very closely. Okay. So when newness becomes familiar, mm-hmm. what happens is the elevated biochemistry goes back to baseline. Mm-hmm. This is a new normal Mm -hmm. for us, Mm brain-wise. And with this new normal, the new normal of interaction choices is no longer I choose us over me. The new normal is I choose me over us. And that is normal. That's normal. It's Mm -hmm. biological. Mm -hmm. That's so interesting. Okay. Now... It kind of depends on what your baseline level of selfishness is mm. at that point. Where the baseline yeah. lands. Because not everybody's the same right. on that. Right. But that's what you'll have to work with mm-hmm. Wherever once you move from newness to familiar. Whatever your baseline is and their bas- baseline yes. is. So, so let me ask you a question. Which one is... So, so if you spend the first six months or two years, six months or two years, however long, being choosing we over me, is that the right way? Or, or is the baseline, which is biological, I'm choosing, I'm now tending to choose me over we. Yes. Is that more normal? Or is that more yeah. optimal? They're like, both normal. Yeah, they're both okay. normal. Biologically speaking, they're right. both normal. Right. Okay. Right. But... To have a stable and satisfying relationships, Mm -hmm. the new baseline normal Mm -hmm. will be your enemy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Not your your support or your ally. Yeah. So you have to fight against this new normal. Mm. Okay, that's a better way to say it. You can't go on autopilot Mm -hmm. with it. Mm -hmm. And that's why we call it intentional interaction choices. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's no longer choices driven by feelings. Mm -hmm. It's intentional choices that end up driving feelings. Mm -hmm. So this is when the honeymoon is over. Yes. (laughs) Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) Kevin. Very daunting. Poor Kevin. (laughs) (laughs) And so how do you change your mind, your, your, your behaviors? How do you, how do you live how do you live intentionally in this new baseline, this new normal that doesn't come okay. natural? So uh, it, it depends on what your baseline frame of is. reference mm-hmm. is in terms of how you answer this question. Okay. So if, if you're a secular researcher, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you would say, okay, basically what it boils down to is you have two people on an ongoing basis making intentional choices to grow three identities – the you, the me, and the us. Mm. Okay. And you just have to commit to that, and you have to make self get out of the way of us, but without self disappearing. Self still has to have its voice. Mm -hmm. So you still have to communicate, this is what I think, this is what I feel, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. Both people have to do that. Mm -hmm. And both people have to be able to receive that mm-hmm. rather than defend against it. Mm. And then both people move to a commonly shared plan of how all three of these identities are going to grow and be protected. Mm. It's a really good word. Okay. Mm-hmm. So 
if you look at it from a theological perspective, mm -hmm. we would say, yes, all of that research is true because all truth is God's truth. That's discovered truth. I can't find a chapter and verse for it, but it's still congruent with everything mm -hmm. I learn in revealed truth of Scripture. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, with special revelation, I have an understanding of how do I become less selfish. Mm. It's good. <laughs> that research is not able to address that. Yeah. So I, I could give you specific names of some of the leading researchers who've still gotten divorced. It, it's not because of a lack of information or skills. Mm. See? Mm. It's because the heart still is not in tune with the information mm. and the skills mm. to it's do really the follow good. It's really good. And that's hard. I was about to say, and that's really That's very hard. hard. It's really hard. And so a, a couple who comes to you, I know that, okay, you said people come to prevent and new, new relationships, new... Yeah, new then the next phase is where we, we're making this transition mm -hmm. from... Honeymoon's you know, over. Yeah, and, mm -hmm. and then uh, the next phase is um, childbearing phase. Mm. So uh, this is, for most couples, the biggest challenge that they've ever experienced in their relationship. Mm. And uh, research is very, very clear on um, the impact of satisfaction on relationships in the adjustments that are going on mm. for both the new mother and the new father. And is it equal but different? Um, I think that's a pretty good way of describing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's um, it depends on who you talk to. <laughs> <laughs> I bet. <laughs> because each person's going to feel like theirs is bigger. Mm -hmm. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, yeah. And so then just by you saying that, one of the probably most difficult things is getting out of your own way and realizing that your voice isn't, Always the loudest it's, voice. It's going to be a much greater demand on personal sacrifice for the you and the me, mm -hmm. and especially a lot harder work to protect the us. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because you have like a black hole need in mm -hmm. front of you mm -hmm. that you're always pouring into, mm -hmm. and the most easy outcome is that the us gets neglected yeah. in that. Yeah. And then you have great vulnerabilities for people coping with that lack of connection mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in ways that add new problems on top of problems. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And when, uh, to that point, I could see how you being vulnerable in that moment and communicating what you really need or what you're really missing would be so difficult that you just don't do it and then that yes. creates a new negative normal for years to come. Yes. So getting back to interactional choices, mm -hmm. any anytime there's an exchange, uh, you have two automatic responses, and then the third response that's very unautomatic. Mm -hmm. Okay. The two automatic responses are a moving away from, mm -hmm. or a moving against. Okay. John Gottman calls this bids and turns. So a bid is I'm putting out a request or an invitation, 
that helps me reassess our relationship. What's our connection level with mm -hmm. one another? Can you it, give an example of a bid? It, it could be very direct, like, boy, we haven't been sexually intimate and since I can't remember when. I'd, I'd really love for us to reconnect mm -hmm. sexually. So that's mm -hmm. a very direct bid. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. but it, and it, then the person has a choice. So they're going to have, you know, they actually have three choices at that point. Mm -hmm. a, a turning towards choice. Which would mean I miss it too. Like, it, it does that... not mean that you have to agree with okay. the request. Like, yeah, let's have sex. Okay. <laughs> okay. You could say something like, you know, I love you. I love having sex with you, but there's no way on heaven's name I'm going to be able to do it for this week. <laughs> and still, that's turning towards. And that's a still turning towards. Mm. And I would love to have a rain check. Mm -hmm. See, that's a turning towards. Mm -hmm. And what is turning against? The turning against was, you've got to be out of your mind. Mm. You're the last person in the world I feel like having sex with at this point. Mm. Do you know how much you've been neglecting me with all this help I need with the new baby? You're my enemy, not my lover. Mm. So that's a very direct moving against. Mm -hmm. And then what's the third one? A moving away would just be no response or I'm not going to deal with it. It's, it's a way of trying to keep the peace so you're not having a moving against experience. Mm -hmm. But a moving away and a moving against both have the same outcome of creating more separation. Mm -hmm. So a peaceful coexistence plan mm -hmm. is nice for the peace, but you're still creating more separation. Yeah. Yeah. It's very unnatural and hard to do the moving towards, especially when there's differences, problems, or conflicts. Mm -hmm. I would almost prefer somebody move against me than away from me. Like, yeah. ugh, that just feels... And we all have our preferences that yeah. way. Yeah. See? I mean, I'd much prefer somebody move towards me. Yeah. But, but God. If you, if you just do national surveys and you look at all of the different possibilities, you have four possibilities. Mm -hmm. You have both people moving against. We call that fight, fight. Mm -hmm. You have both people moving away. We call that flee, flee. Mm -hmm. Then you have one person doing one and the other person doing the other. Mm -hmm. Flee, fight, and fight, flee. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So the most common pattern in the U.S. is where women are trying to move towards, engage, but the man feels like it's a moving against. Mm -hmm. And so they say the, the wife is in fight mode. Mm -hmm. That the, is very interesting. The wife experiences the husband as moving away mm -hmm. or fleeing, mm -hmm. whereas if you interview the husband, what he's saying is, yeah, I love my wife, but seems like she's just trying to start a fight, and that's not good for the relationship, so I'm just trying to avoid the fight, mm -hmm. and I'm not trying to avoid her. Mm. But to the woman, it but feels... But to the woman, it feels like abandonment, like yeah. you're leaving us, you're leaving me. Yeah. You don't care about us. So that is the most common. That's the out of the four, that's the most common. I can just totally see that. Statistically. Yeah. I bet every single woman who's has their AirPods on right now is nodding yeah. their head. Yeah. <laughs> now there there's it's sometimes reversed. Sure. I've I see it in my own office sure. and statistically it's it's shown that um, sometimes the moving towards person is the male and the moving away person is the female. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. So I'm yeah. sure that it's all over the board. Yeah, it's mixed. But the, but if you just look at the numbers, the biggest club is the flea fight where the husband's fleeing and the wife is fighting. Mm. But neither one thinks that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. I'm sure. So what percent, statistically speaking, of married couples are happily married? I know that yes. I heard you once talk and you said that they're in three. We yeah, land in one of three or four categories. If you think of outcome groups, uh -huh. Uh -huh. you could say there's three basic outcome groups, even though there's subgroups within these three basic groups. But the three basic groups are people that don't stay together. And that's a 40 to 50% group. Mm -hmm. And that's counting the full length of relationships. Okay. Okay. Um, the group number two, people that stay together, but they're not glad they're staying together. Mm -hmm. So they have their stability variable, but they've eroded away their satisfaction variable with their interactional choices with each other. But for a variety of different reasons, they say, well, we're just staying together. Mm-hmm. And how many, what percent? And that's a 20 to 30 percent okay. group. And then uh, your third group are people who are together. They still have their stability variable. And on the overall average, they have their satisfaction variable. Mm -hmm. So they're on the overall average saying, we're glad we're together. We're mm -hmm. not just together. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean every minute of every day we're glad right. we're together. For sure. Okay. And so that's a 20 to 30 percent group. So you could say, on average, there's only about one out of four couples who are together not only happy. together, but glad yeah. that they're together. Together and yeah. glad that they're together. They're really, when, when researchers see something like that, they go, now we got to really understand that. What is it that makes group number three different from groups number two and groups number one? Mm -hmm. And so that's where they came up with the pre predictive variables, the changeable and the unchangeable mm -hmm. variables. Mm -hmm. And... That's where they came up with the, the it's the changeable variables that trump the unchangeable variables. Mm -hmm. Because you have people in group number three who have more of the, the unchangeable negative predictor variables in their relationship mm. than people in groups number two or groups number one. That is very interesting. Yes. Wow. That is very, very interesting. So... I, I hear those and I, I understand I understand groups one and I understand groups three. I understand why something can be so bad that it doesn't work and I understand why it can be good. Mm -hmm. I don't understand how I could never be in group number two. Yes. Like, so how does what percent of our society? 20 to 30 percent. 20 to 30 yeah. percent. Why it's, did... It's much higher in conservative churches. Oh, I'm sure about yeah. that. I'm, yeah. That does not surprise me at all. But why Why would somebody just live live at a five for the yeah. rest of... Like, I'm, my marriage is, is not great. He doesn't care. I don't really care, but mm -hmm. we're not going to get divorced and we're not going to keep fighting. So it is what it is. Right. Why do people stay? Why do people stay in group number two? Why wouldn't they yes. either get divorced or get better? Right. It's a good question. And the answer is for a variety of reasons. Mm -hmm. For some people, it's a, a values issue. And, and for many people, it's a religious values. Mm. I, I made a promise not only to you, but before God. And to them, 
that's trumping no matter how negative the relationship experience is mm. with the these are the group I refer to as the stably miserable for the glory of God Ugh, group. Just awful. And you know what I would say to that? God is not happy. God's not glorified. <laughs> no. By stably miserable. No. Yes. No. Like so for the, the very thing. But that's, that's their value system. See, that's them together. that's the thing that leads them to. Yeah. So they I stay together, but they <laughs> continue to maintain the same eroding interactional choices of against and away mm-hmm. with each other. Mm-hmm. See, so they're not connecting the dots that all of our against in a way interactional choices are not glorifying to God. Mm-hmm. Just staying together is glorifying mm-hmm. to God. And this is why there's road rage. Yes. <laughs> because so many people are just yes. not happy. God, just bums yeah. me out for them. Get out of group number two if yes. you are in group number two. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and go to group three. But a lot, a lot of people, even for non-religious reasons, are staying in group number two. Mm-hmm. And, and as they are weighing the trade-offs to them, they're saying, well, this is bad, but it's not as bad as... And then they fill in... Upsetting the kids or yeah. disrupting our finances. How many or, times do you hear people say, we, yeah. st- we stay together yep. for the kids, yep. right? We don't, we don't want to embarrass Sometimes ourselves in the community. It's, it's for my career. Mm. It would My career would take a hit if we mm-hmm. split. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just pure finances. Yeah. It, we couldn't sustain it financially yeah. if we split. Sometimes it's for social status. Yeah, perception. Yeah. Yeah. I get it. I mean, when I was thinking about getting divorced, all of those things, you know, I had mm-hmm. to think through those the impact yes. of all of it because it's true. Like... My finances were impacted. My mm-hmm. children were impacted. My what people thought about me in the community was yes. going to be impacted. So I understand it. The things that I would really want to emphasize, whether it's a faith-based group or not a faith-based group, in group number two, is the hope that can come from changing interactional choices. Good. The problem, though is it always requires the work of two people. Mm -hmm. And so often I see where one person is desiring that, but the other person is not. And so that that, would be so hard. That's such a hard situation to, you have to have compassion for situations like that. Yeah. Or one person wants to change to a point and, but is not willing to, to go the distance for Mm -hmm. the relationship. Yes. As long as it's not, you're not abandoning yourself. Mm-hmm. You know, I like the me, you, we. Mm-hmm. And all three are very, very important. Yeah. So if if you had, I mean, you have so many good nuggets, but if you, if you could only give, because we're already at an hour, okay. <laughs> and, and I'm going to have to have you back, Dr. Barnes, because this was so, so good. But if you, if you could only tell one couple in crisis one message yes. for the rest of your career, what would it be? Yes. I would say that there's hope in the changeable variables trumping the unchangeable variables. But it comes from hard choice making and it requires both people. Mm-hmm. But 
there's radical change that can happen as a result of those things coming together. Mm-hmm. And I know you're a very faithful person, as am I. What role, what role does faith play in this? Yes. So, or have to play in this in your mind in order for it to be successful. To me, uh, it's the total difference maker mm-hmm. because a relationship is what I call a relational lab for personal transformation. Mm, I like that. It's the hardest place to hide. (laughs) And so somebody said, when you get married, God gives you a full-length mirror called your spouse. (laughs) And as I'm moving deeper in my relational funnel with that person, I'm going to learn things about myself that I don't want to learn. It's so true. But that becomes my spiritual opportunity for personal transformation Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. because self is going to have to get out of the way of us for us to grow and be protected no matter no matter what what, no matter and what a faith-based person has a whole different playing field to work on for personal transformation Mm -hmm. that's what faith's all about yeah see so that that's the huge difference maker. Mm. I agree. I totally agree. I haven't always leaned into that. I haven't either. <laughs> but but I so I so believe it. And I've compromised it in mm-hmm. relationships and I have seen the impact of that compromise because you've got to have it. You've just got to have it. And I I just I think you've got to have it. Yeah. It's the difference maker. Yeah, I, I so agree. Well, Dr. Barnes, thank you so much thank for you, being here today. Thank you, Kevin. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> so good. Well, we got to have you back. Okay. Okay. Thank you. This is a really cool thing you guys got going here. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Remedy with Tova Cito. To get more information, sponsor an episode, or contribute to this program, visit us online at tovacito.com slash podcast or find us on social media. 